Hello and welcome to Future Says. I'm your host, Sean Lang, and I've spent my entire career implementing complex data analytics software for leading banks, automotive institutions, and engineering firms. Brought to you by Altair, a global leader in computational science and intelligence, Future Says explores how simulation, data, AI, and high-performance computing are transforming the world around us. In each episode, I talk with some of the industry's leading experts to hear how they're using data to spark the world's next generation innovations and shape the future of industries around the globe. With that, let's dive in. I'm delighted to welcome Errol Kuhlemeister onto Future Says. Errol is the head of the AI Foundation at H&M, where he's responsible for machine learning and data science development within the group globally. Prior to joining H&M, Errol was Director of Data Science at Think Big Analytics. He was a lead data scientist at the Vodafone Group, and he also held various analytical roles at Nordea. He can take both the strategic as well as a technical viewpoint on data, so I'm sure you'll make a very fascinating guest, Errol. Thanks very much for joining. Thank you very much for having me. Awesome. So firstly, tell the audience a little more about yourself, Errol. What have you been up to recently? Well, what have I been up to recently? It's a very good question. Thank you so much for for the very nice introduction. I think it gives a a nice overview to the listeners on where I come from and what I've done on a high level perspective. Most recently, after leaving Think Big Analytics, I joined H&M, as you said. My responsibility was to build up the internal AI capabilities, basically going to very few employees working centrally with the AI into uh, a large team consisting of approximately 100, 120 people working on a daily basis, delivering value in production with AI at scale. Awesome. Tell us a bit more then about H&M and AI at scale and what that means. Where are you today? AI at scale. So I would say it's been part of my specialization the last few years. I worked uh, advising and hands-on in in large companies. H&M, of course, being global, uh, over 5,000 physical retail stores across the world, over 120 million people in our customer club uh, for online, makes us a, a major player, I would say, in the, the space. What If we look on how everything started, because I guess that's where we're coming from, we weren't really good with AI. We weren't really good with data analytics uh, 2016. It became quite apparent that we needed to do something. We had a very great business model, opening physical resale stores, It worked very well for 70 years, but then something came, something that started challenging the physical retail uh, stores. And of course, you can't expand much more when you're almost everywhere in the world. What do you do? Open more? Yeah, we already have like four or five uh, stores in New York, uh, in Manhattan. So where are we going to put the stores? Now, of course, the the expansion comes from online, being more relevant to our customers, working in a new digital economy. And then AI becomes quite apparent for, for taking great decisions and being more personal. So we started the first few use cases, 2016, 2017, with an external consultancy firms because we didn't have that internal capability. Basically, we're so successful that we established AI as a function, the AI function in 2018. The first new function in H&M in almost 10 years. The one prior to that was sustainability, which is very dear to our heart then you can imagine how important AI is to us today. So I was hired in 2018 to build up the internal capability, starting looking on the technology, how should we integrate, how do we scale, and then starting hiring people. So we hired close to 100 people in the the last two years, built up internal capabilities, uh, replaced all the consultants, and now basically have changed our entire strategy. 
going from vertical use cases. So we did forecasting here, we did personalization here into horizontal capabilities to be able to scale even more. We want all of our core operational processes to be amplified with AI by 2025. And I would say that's a really ambitious target. And in order for us to achieve that, we need to start pinpointing what are our core operational processes and how can we leverage AEI to, to truly become data-driven in all of them. So you started the journey in 2016. How far along do you think you've come? You know, What percentage of becoming an AI leader do you feel you are today? It truly comes back to what we define as being a leader. I think we, we are in a leader in a sense that we've proven value and just that put us far ahead compared to many other companies. The, the good decision that we took early on was that we're going to do all of the things that we focus on. We're going to get value tomorrow, not in a week, not in a month or like several years, which is uh, tend to be the, the thing in big organizations, but we're going to do it tomorrow. We're going to ship with every delivery, which basically means we focus on values so and not doing the most complex AI, not too much on the neural networks, uh, deep learning, our own architectures, but really focus on, let's do something easy. Let's see if we can improve a baseline and get the value back. That made us a leader, not in becoming the most advanced, but actually delivering on AI. And I think that's a key differentiator. So we could take that money and reinvest in new things. And when we are in production, then we can start improving and becoming more advanced. Remember, if we can do just an uplift by 0.1% in H&M, that accounts for a lot of money. So rather than doing 10% in three years, as a promise, let's do zero 1% tomorrow and then do that incrementally. That minimizes the risk of investment. And that also put us, I would say, in a good position for where we are right now. And where we are right now is how do we take the leap from proving use case by use case into all operational processes? And that's not something you solve overnight, but you need to consistently work on it. You need to have good technical architecture that supports your processes. And you need to work with the business side to truly transform a company to become fully data and AI driven. And do you think it's easier the step from 2021 to 2025 because you already have proven that value? I guess maybe stakeholders, there's no maybe resentment there now that it's proven somewhat. And are you very enthusiastic that it's an easier step forward? I'm always enthusiastic. <laughs> I, I love the challenges. But it's like you say, you're only as successful as your last win. And I also think um, one quote that I really like is that successes has 100 fathers and failures has none. And I think we've been quite successful so far, so everybody wants to associate them. But I think as soon as we stop delivering value, just uh, keep on delivering promises, that's the day we're going to see um, that we actually move backwards instead. So I think it's extremely important to stay close to all of your stakeholders, work with the, the organizations and just do it piece by piece. So create a clear vision on where we want to go. So we have this 2025 vision. We have an idea and a plan how to get there. We need to get the business excited about it and we need to deliver in increments, not just in the end in 2025. And I think if we can keep that up, then we will be successful. But ask me in 2025 and I'll give you an honest answer if it was hard or if it was easy. Yeah. So you have the strategic high level vision, Errol. Can we now lift the hood and go into some of these use cases that contribute to this vision? Where yeah. are H&M adopting AI today and, and where do you still need to adopt it more? That's a super good question as well. I think if you know a little bit about H&M, we are 
an end-to-end value chain company, which means as a traditional retailer, we design the clothes, we do forecasting of them. So how much should we order? We don't own the actual factories ourselves, but we cooperate with uh, large amounts of them. We then take them back into the different warehouses across the world, and then we distribute them out to, to the different channels. And then, of course, we work with the customer. And then in the end of it, we do markdowns and we do end-of-life type of activities as well. So where do we see AI in all of this? Pretty much everywhere. We started with seven or eight large-scale use cases, which were everything from fashion forecasting, where are the trends going? So amplifying our designers' uh, decision-making process to demand forecasting for the company, how much will we sell in the next few years? In-price negotiations with the suppliers and supplier recommendation type of AI engines, all the way down we're getting the clothes. So how are we going to do allocation, warehouse balancing, and then, of course, personalization, markdowns of the clothes, etc. But that was step one. Uh, And as I said, those were seven or eight large-scale use cases, kind of high value, high feasibility, good for proving the point. But how do we go to all the operational processes? I can't tell you exactly which uh, the next hundreds of use cases are going to be, but what I can tell you is there are going to be hundreds of them. So what we are moving towards now is that how can we take some of the things we've already built to enable the next set of use cases? So what are the common components capabilities? Take, for instance, uh, balancing of warehouses. That is really about in-season, in-season forecasting. And in-season forecasting is just one use case, uh, balancing of warehouses today, but could potentially in the future be fueling a lot of other. That means that if we have horizontal capabilities, as that is, then we can shorten the time to value in-season demand forecasting. So that's the way we're going to start looking on these capabilities now. Not single use case with the roadmap, but groups of use cases that enable us to move faster towards the, the value part. Uh, end of the day, <laughs> it is all about the value. Of course. And on the value point then, Errol, do you have any nice headline bus slogan statistics to say this is the return on investment that we've generated and this particular use case to the stakeholders? What are those really headline statistics? It's a good, but it's also a sensitive question. What I can tell the, the listeners is we were able to produce a significant amount of value to make sure our initial investments actually had a payback period of less than a year. That's usually raises the eyebrows because usually <laughs> you never see payback of these large-scale AI initiatives. But what I can tell you, every single investment we are doing is a good investment. And what we always start with is a business case. And we also start with a plan how we're going to get the money back as soon as possible. We are a very entrepreneurial company, hard to believe, given that we are plus 170,000 employees, but but it goes back to our founder. Some of our core values are the entrepreneurial spirit that require us to test a lot of things, but has also requires us to to test with smartness. So uh, follow the the shopping bags with something that Alan Parson, the H&M founder, once said, that's what we're doing. We're following the shopping bags. We're following the customer to make sure we can meet their demands as well. And following the customer, I think less and less, Errol, that customers in a physical outlet and more and more customers are online. And, and that's one trend within retail. And another trend might be this, this emphasis on sustainable fashion. Can you talk to us a bit more some of these major trends within the retail industry today and how data and AI plays a role? No, I think you're spot on in that observation. We can see a major uplift in our online store. We, of course, still have physical retail uh, model which I think is a very good model. The question is, how will that look in the future? 
how can we make that more to a personalized experience as well? I think that's what we're going to look for in the future, that the personalized experience. Is the store going to be the store as it is today? I don't think so. I think we're going to incorporate a lot more edge AI type of capabilities in the store to make sure you have recommendations in the mirrors, that you have more of an experience that is unique to you as a customer. And I also think that the online channel will become even more and more important. We could see that with the pandemic now, that we saw a major uplift. And it's like uh, somebody said, one, what is driving your digital transformation? The CTO, the CDO, the CEO, or COVID. And of course, in this case, it is COVID that's accelerating the digitalization. And I think on, on the sustainability part as well, it's such an important part of the things that we're doing in this industry. I think as our CEO, Helena Helmerson said, is that we, H&M, made fashion available for everyone. Uh, now we want to make sustainable fashion affordable and available for everyone. So it, it is truly a trend and it's a, a wave that's going to change the world. And we as a company have a responsibility to be a part and uh, changing the world into a more sustainable place to be. And on that most recent addition to the C-suite, the coronavirus, which I quite <laughs> like, Errol, <laughs> you mentioned there it's accelerated the move to online. Has it accelerated any of your particular AI projects or has it decelerated any of them? When everything came, I, I still remember the day when uh, the virus became more and more apparent. Everything kind of stopped for a short while because everybody needed to see what, what's the impact of the things that we're doing. Hiring uh, was being freezed uh, and a lot of these discussions needed to take place. I remember myself, we worked uh, quite late during the evenings trying to figure out what can we do? What, what should we do? What is the government's role? What is our role? It was relatively chaotic and I, I think that goes for everyone. What we realized is that we need to accelerate. If we stand still now, that means that we're going to lose a year. We're going to need to do something, especially in data and AI. So we actually continued. We, of course, paused for a short while, and then we just accelerated through, continuing our hiring, focusing and making sure that we were able to make decision making even better in these times. I think some of the activities that we also did was uh, reallocating from, for instance, the forecasting. As you can imagine, all forecasting was pretty much wrong. It was right when we took the decision, but then the pandemic had nobody could explore, could give us those numbers in advance. I surely would have hoped I, I could have had such a forecasting capability, but I didn't. So we needed instead, what do we do with the things that came in that we really can't sell? So we accelerated balancing of warehouses instead to make sure that, of course, demand was different in different parts of the world. Me being from Sweden, we, we never had a lockdown, but in other parts of the world, people had a lockdown. So what do people want in different parts of the world? And how can we make sure that we don't sell sweaters and hoodies in a place where they can't use them? How can we make sure sweatpants is available in places where they can't actually leave the house? How do we make sure that the different type of um, both garments and accessories are available for people that need them? Of course, it wasn't perfect, but those were the type of initiatives that we accelerated. And I think they were a, a tremendous internal success story, given how we built this up. We were able to just shift gears in a, a few months, a good focus on new things. We could take the learnings we've already built on some of the quantification engines and just apply them to, to the new things. So I think this was technology success story, but also from way you're working. We didn't have six months release plans. We didn't have 12 months release plans. We worked very agile and could shift gears from one day to another. So it was really down to the team that made such a big impact uh, into that what we could do with AI. We don't treat our project as research project. 
that has a very long timeline. We treat them as something that we should be able to see the value tomorrow. Yeah, so a lot of lessons learned amidst the pandemic era, which is always a good thing. Do you think a lot of these changes are permanent changes? Or do you think in 2023, when the virus is completely gone, we'll go back to pre-2019 life? Or I sure hope not. <laughs> I think, of course, what I miss is a lot of the human interactions that are non-digital. I truly miss spending time with my uh, great colleagues and friends. But I do think the acceleration of digital tools is a good thing. I surely hope that we will fly less when this pandemic is over, because I think that we need to take the impact on the environment seriously. So I do think that we will see some good coming out of this really bad pandemic. And I hope that the world can heal together. And so can we open the box now on the sustainability question? I yeah. Think. It's core, as you said, to H&M's mission. So what, what is the company doing within this space? Very good question. I just want to point out, I'm not a sustainability expert, but I think it's very important personally. We center ourselves around three things, being fair and equal to the people and the communities around us, and using our planet's resources consciously and become a circular and climate positive company, as well as leading the change by pushing ourselves and the industry to reinvent and transform. So those are kind of the core messages around what H&M is doing and uh, believing important with sustainability. And do you think there's two big debates right now, the sustainable use of technology, the sustainable use of our climate, our environment? Do you think there's a merge that AI can play a role within the sustainability topic? Definitely. And I mean, if you just look on what we center around leading the change, we take this seriously. And leading the change also means that you utilize technology to our advantage. For instance, we used AI for even more sustainable decision making across our value chain both from designing for better resource use to improve the forecasting of demand. Basically, what that means is if we don't over forecast, there will be less waste in our supply chain, having a positive impact on the world. If we only make the things our customers want, that means that we are minimizing the impact we have on the industry as well. Exactly. And I think there's a lot of trends within retail. It, it really is a fascinating point in time to be within a retail company at the moment. You mentioned so many use cases already within the first 20 minutes or so of the <laughs> discussion. There's only so much technology can do. There's only so much humans can do. One thing you've spoke at length about is the concept of augmented intelligence and mixing humans and technology. Can you yep. tell a bit more about this? Of course. Augmented intelligence, or as we have kind of pushed for a very long time, amplified intelligence as well. I mean, it's basically the same thing is that we truly believe in people. We believe that people will be able to do things that AI will never be able to, or at least I hope so. We have a creative brain that can create art and, and a lot of things that, of course, AI can mimic. But I still think that this is what the humans are good at. And we still want to have a lot of humans taking these decisions. But what we want to focus on is a lot around the long tail problems with AI. So, for instance, in the H&M catalog, I mean, there's thousands and thousands of different garments and variations, etc., which basically means that those that are high sellers, those that are going to be saving us, providing us with a lot of value, those humans should be able to work on. So, for instance, in assortment quantification today, we are suggesting numbers. We are not enforcing numbers in on-demand forecasting. And we have the really talented and experienced people sitting there getting the suggestions, the confidence intervals, but they are responsible for taking the actual decisions. 
because there's a larger context that you need to get this narrow AI into that we believe only humans can make. I hope that makes sense, but we truly believe that connecting the dots, humans are good at. Seeing the bigger picture, humans are good at. Providing numbers based on historical input, well, I would say AI is better on that. So if we can free up the human's time on working on the very tedious tasks that are very monotone, that might not be providing or creative enough for humans, why shouldn't we use AI for that? Do you have a couple more you know, examples of that in practice at H&M? Yeah. So one of the part, I think I mentioned it early on, is uh, fashion forecast, is we have really good designers, super talented. They might be creating the, the next season. But they might be a little bit unsure because they have a gut feeling, you know, that gut feeling you can have as a human. Oh, this is going to be nice. Or I think this is going to work uh, when I post it on social media. What you can do by using AI then is, so say, for instance, I have leopard is the thing I believe is going to be big next year. And don't take my word for it because I'm terrible with fashion. There are other people that are good with it. But take that and you want to check that, well, leopard, I think that's going to be big. So you type that into a fashion forecasting tool. And that's going to give you the projections. So based on the trends, where they are going, is this going up? Is this going down? When do we think it's going to peak? So you can also have a dialogue and you can put facts to your gut. And most of the time it's right. But some of the times you also see a negative impact as well. So it's just very good to be able to amplify their own process to make sure we're just a little bit tighter in the things we're trying to put on the market. And so does this suggest for the younger generation of listeners, Errol, that are listening to this and thinking, what should I study? What should I do? How should I embark on a career? Should they focus on what makes them uniquely human rather than focusing on things like computer science and engineering that, as you say, you know, machines are excellent at? I've always, my entire career, was fascinated with the cross-pollination of different topics. So I don't believe in the future people will only be an engineer focusing on one thing. I don't believe that uh, you will be an economist working only with the economy. I don't believe you will work purely with something. Where I see the most most value being created is knowing a little bit about everything. We talk about the T-shaped profiles where you specialize in one thing, but you have a lot of insight in the other things. That's the intersection between science and art, which I think just is fascinating. So think to the, the younger listeners uh, trying to figure out what to do in the world. Start with the question, what do I want to do? Where do you see yourself? It's always easier to start with yourself and then see how can I make an impact with that? So I think engineering will always be something that, that's going to have a future. But try to find the intersection between business and tech, having the business tech kind of focus on things. I'm talking from my own experience. I have that background, I have both engineering and business, which has made me know a lot of things, but made me not know one thing very good, uh, which I, I am rumbling a little bit because it's, it's such a hard question. Who, what should you do? When should you do it? I think what's most important is what makes you happy and focus on that and kind of, can you make your passion to your work? Then you're not going to work a single day in your life. And I think that's what I've done. So on the team then, on the AI Foundation team at H&M, I think you mentioned there's 120 people? Yes, approximately. Uh, more specifically in my my area, I think we are around 90. And then we just reorganized so the data engineers uh, sit under the Data Foundation team. But more actli actively, the core team working on the AI capabilities is around 120. And then, of course, you're going to have a 
a layer with people working closely, which will account for a lot of the business people as well. That was going to be my next question. You know, what's the composition of that team? What are their skills? What are their backgrounds? It's also another excellent question. I think what we do is that good to point out that we work in a product organization. So we're centered around small autonomous teams. What we do have is kind of the, the core team for AI and data science that works on the algorithmic tech side, where you usually have a product owner and a few engineers, data scientists and a data analyst. So you usually work quite closely with them. And then you're working together with your stakeholders for the business requirements. But given that a lot of the things we do needs to be integrated into the business side, you're probably going to work very closely to a, a twin product or a cluster of products trying to deliver the same value. So, for instance, in assortment quantification, you're going to have one team focus on the uh, the technical delivery side of things, one team focusing on the algorithmic, then one team focusing on the integration and rollout type of things. So there are really roles for a lot of different profiles. Not everything is centered around the algorithmic uh, part of things. There is a very good research paper from Google. I was published in NIPS, I think 2016, handling technical depth in machine learning systems. It points out machine learning and ML is just one, one small piece. Then all the technical part is around those things for serving and engineering. What they don't mention is that all the business integrations. So it's 70, 20, 30, 70% uh, change management, 20% technology and 10% algorithms. Yeah. And you mentioned a research paper. One I read recently, Errol, was from MIT who said that only 10% of organizations are achieving significant financial benefits from AI. In large reason, the explanation of that was that companies that actually draw on the interaction and feedback between humans and AI were six times more likely to achieve success. So it is about the whole entire team. Exactly. It is truly a team effort. I remember when I was quite young <laughs> into the, the AI game before they even talked about it as AI as well. And they said data science, the most sexist job of the 20th century, something. And yes, of course, it is a very sexy position. But back then, we also talked about the unicorn. And I think, yeah, of course, before we understood it, but it's not about one person. It's about a team of people delivering significant value. Of course, for proof of concept, you can pull data uh, like a Kegel competition. You can work and you can create a theoretical value. But if you're going to receive, as you said, this significant monetary value back of your investment, you need to be very pragmatic. You need to handle it as all the other initiatives. It needs to go through, well, the corporate type of integration. You need a team, you need engineers, you need to be stable, you need to have SLAs when you're rolling it out, you need proper change management, and you need to be able to follow up if something happens in production. Too many times I've seen teams of uh, not unskilled, but unexperienced uh, people putting AI into production and then start uh, seeing deterioration. And they spend 90% of their time just firefighting the things that are happening. So they don't free up their own time to work on the new interesting things. And then they leave and they leave some poor guy behind trying to just uh, mend, <laughs> mend the situation in a good way. On that then, Errol, what are the other adverse effects of AI that you've seen implemented? You know, in poor implementations of AI, where have companies generally gone wrong? The poor it's a very good question. I think I've touched upon it a few times. When you try to boil the ocean, change is incremental. Change is not instant. I think that's one of my major learnings. If you think you can build it and they will come, you are wrong. People need to be a part of this journey. 
And I mean, we all read about these mistakes that AI have done, the racist chatbot, uh, the, the kind of the, the wrongful, the bias in the screening processes. Those are terrible. You need to also know those aspects, which is kind of the, the ethical aspects of AI. Those are super important. You need to have an ethical framework, as we do, when implementing AI to make sure that you take informed decisions, that you handle data carefully with the respect that it needs. You need to acknowledge that, as I said, it's not going to happen overnight. You need to get people on board and have them as a part of the journey. Are there areas of H&M within your team that you are running AI projects without humans in the loop whatsoever? And if not, what is the acceptable point of running AI without humans in the loop? It's a hard question. Now, well, it's an easy question because the answer is no, we don't run any AI without humans in the loop at this stage. Probably at some point in the future. I think humans need to be in the loop still. And we've seen what can happen if you don't control your output. I think all of this goes back to the capability we want to build around model monitoring and performance evaluation. The only way I would trust AI to, to run completely um, autonomously uh, is if we have a framework in place to be able to track and follow up so we can actually see if the decision making is biased, that we can follow up on this type of question. I would love to get there because I have a philosophy that you should automate as much as you can, but you shouldn't automate the things uh, you shouldn't. And I think at this point, we shouldn't automate or leave autonomous decision-making to AI just because I don't trust it yet. And it might be hard coming from me that actually worked with this for a very long time, but I believe we need an ethical framework. We need to follow up on all of these topics and we're not quite there yet. Hopefully we'll be one day. One big debate about the ethicalness of AI is the fact that it can replace jobs. And we've all heard stories. Do you think that lays on the shoulders of the technologists like yourself, Errol, to ensure that you can develop AI in an ethical way? Or should that be controlled by somebody else? I think it's a joint effort. I think us as a part of this industry needs to be very well integrated into discussions and we need to take it seriously as we do. I think this is uh, really, and it also goes back to the sustainability aspect where we truly believe it should be fair and equal. If we just go back to kind of replacing the, the jobs, placing, I don't know, very high likelihood that we will start replacing jobs. But if you also look on the historical aspect that once upon a time, somebody invented the cars and what happened to, to all the people working with horses is to change better or worse. I believe it's better. I think our part in this lies into making sure there still is a place for the people that might be working on the things that might be obsolete for the future. Because what we need are more people working and solving the problems, not less. And I think there will be a shift in the type of jobs they will have that will probably be more tech savvy. But I don't think that we as humans will strive away too far from needing that human interactions. So what might be more important in the future is actually other type of jobs that we can't even imagine today. But I am not the right person because I'm no good at uh, forecasting the future. <laughs> yeah, it was a bit of a pun in that, but I really wish I could see. Uh, what I can see are the trends where we're going right now, but I can't see longer than around the corner. But what I do think and believe personally is that I would like to be a part of making sure there's a place for people in the future as well. I love people, and I think people are our greatest assets. AI is here to support us, not make life harder for people. And if that's the case, then maybe we shouldn't do AI. Yeah. So, Errol, you say you're not so good at forecasting the future. 
<laughs> but, but I will have to press you on that. Yeah, sure. Try. Try forecast the future. What's coming tr- next? What are the other big trends? Do I need to give you a confidence interval on, on my forecast as well? Because that might be hard. But <laughs> <laughs> no, so, so, like, I'll, I can give it a, a go, uh, but I won't be held accountable uh, for the answers. So where are we going? Super good question. I think that we will start seeing more and more of personalized experiences. And I'm not talking about the, the Netflix recommendation engine. I'm talking about a true personalized, contextualized experience is something I hope for. I saw a picture or a quote uh, a long time ago, which says everybody wants to feel like a rock star. Uh, and don't get me wrong. Uh, I don't mean like a rock star on stage uh, drinking and so on, some whiskey. I mean, like when you go into a store, the treatment you get, that you get people actually supporting you, asking you for your needs, making sure they are fully dedicated to you and what your needs are. And I think that's where we're going. And if we can use AI for that type of experience, I think that's a good thing. So that's one of the things. I'm talking about a hyper-personalized experience. That's one of the the forecasts I have. It's not going to be easy, but it's also going to require industries to talk to each other, more consent, more openness of data on those type of topics. Because when I worked in security, people were always, where is the line? How much can you collect? What shouldn't you collect? I said, like a joke, um, when it becomes creepy, that's when you pass the line. So, so let's try to have a hyper-personal experience, which actually is good for you, not creepy for you. And let's make that individualized as well. Uh, hopefully that's where we're going. And then I hope we can use AI for good. I think that it's been a lot around businesses optimizing their business model as well. But I think on the flip side of things, if we can start making better use of the resources that we're using, why shouldn't we see that as a positive thing? If we have a hyper-personalized experience, making sure as well that we only produce the things that we need, that's a good thing for the environment. That's one of the steps. But also start seeing more and better applications of AI to support everything. (laughs) Making sure we have better schools, digitalize the teachers, I mean, people talk about these deep fake type of things. Why don't we take that and push that towards becoming teachers as well? Having that type of experience. We will start seeing more and more of actual real life use cases. I think as soon as companies start seeing the value of AI, I think they see the value, but they're not living the value because they're not seeing the return of investment yet. When you start seeing that, that's when we're going to start seeing all of these um, predictions coming through as well. On the hyper-personalization experience for consumers, a lot of what you were referring to was almost the online customer experience. A big trend in retail is the omni-channel experience. And can you talk a bit, you know, you've already mentioned how important the the physical stores are still to H&M. So what does hyper-personalization mean like within the stores? These topics are just futuristic at the moment. But what I do believe is that we'll start seeing more use of edge AI. And I just want to point out, I think it's important that the the customer or the individual are the decision maker in what they want to experience. So I think looking at contextual computing, for instance, is what I see in the future. You have a phone with a lot of information on it, which can be used to contextualize. But that's also important that you are in control of that data. So contextualized experience might be that you you get offers or personalized experience which are close to the things that, that you do on an everyday to make sure they're just more individualized. When you go into the store, you can use your phone, for instance, of finding garments, getting recommendations, et cetera. 
if we could have, for instance, uh, mirrors with AI incorporated in them, utilizing AI for computation, they could take a snapshot of you, you could test addresses, uh, you could have a perfect fit. How many times haven't we ordered things online just to see this doesn't fit me and then send it back? It's a total waste of resources, both for the company, the environment, and you as an individual spending time on it. What if you could just take a picture of yourself with your device, compute your measurement, and then we could map that towards all of our garments to make sure you always have a perfect fit with everything that you do? That's, I mean, the hyper-personalization is really making sure that we minimize the time you need to spend on non-value-adding activities. And that's what I want. I want somebody to know me. I want somebody to give me the recommendation. And I want somebody to help me be in better control of my life. Very exciting times, Errol. I agree. I can't, <laughs> can't wait till it gets to the point where I never have to return those trousers again because they're too small or they're too big for me. <laughs> no, I, I agree. I've tried some uh, prototypes um, of that type of technology and uh, the results are definitely promising. Exciting, exciting. So Errol, there's going to be a lot of people listening to this that are hearing so many positives that I'm sure have dabbled in, in AI projects before, but can we give us a few more pointers and how best to roll out these projects? I read a, a shocking report by Accenture recently that said 80 to 85% of companies are still at the POC stage. I think 15 to 20% are at the strategic scaling stage and only 5% of companies are industrializing for growth. Why are companies still at the very start and how can they accelerate it? I think that's a good summary of some of the things I've said so far. And I think we need to get out of the lab and it's focusing on the value. The, the stage for proof of concept, the train is leaving the station right here and right now. It's a matter of making a, a big bet. Heuristic rule-based might be even better for you just to get the value to start with. What we usually do is build a very simple end-to-end infrastructure for deployment of our models, almost even before we start working on the models, if we believe there's value there. So confirm value, but don't make it too long, maximum a few weeks. If there's value there, go on and build a simple integration path to that value. And the model can be super simple. It can be the easiest form of uh, logistic regression for your classification problems or anything that might be straight out of school book. It doesn't need to be complex. As long as there's value, which is better than random or better what you have today. Then when you have it in production, then you start seeing the value from day one. Already there, you are way beyond most of the companies doing this investment. Then you start improving your infrastructure. You start preparing for scale and industrialization and you start improving the results of that model. That requires you to have a modular architecture that requires you to have loosely coupled integrations of the pipelines that you're building. Software engineering best practices will save you a lot of time and ensure you're able to scale up your companies and your value of AI quite fast as well. And to be honest, it's not harder than that. It sounds super simple and everybody is kind of, what should we do? Follow the best practices. Don't overcomplicate things. Yes, AI, machine learning can be super complex, but in the easiest form, it is relatively easy. Some of the machine learning algorithms we're using in some of our use cases generating lots of value are something that you can learn on an introductionary course. And the point here is not to make the most advanced, is to create more value. More advancements come in the end. So keep it simple. <laughs> yeah. Another important thing to emphasize is that from my perspective, AI is no longer sort of a nice to have. It is increasingly a need to have. In that paper, Errol Accenture said 
three quarters of C-level executives think that their companies risk going out of business if they do not adopt AI by 2025. It's unbelievable. I agree without having any scientific proof. I agree. If you don't start using AI and data, there's going to be competition running on the side of you and running faster. So uh, be prepared for a change. And get started. And get started. such a pleasure speaking to you. Um, Likewise, John. We've got a minute. Any final words of wisdom from you? Well, do good. I think that's the, the final remark. There's so many things you can do in this world, but do good. One of my mottos is really, if I can leave this world contributing to it, becoming a little bit better when I, than when I entered it, then I will be happy. And with my skill sets, I would like to use AI and data to do so. Awesome. Errol Kuhlmeister, it's been a pleasure. I hope by the end of this year, we can do conferences in person again and, and we can meet up and maybe even shake hands. But uh, until then, this has been a real delight. Thanks very much for joining again. Thanks for tuning in. For more Future Says content and to watch all episodes on demand, visit alter.com forward slash Future Says. We'll see you again next time.